the order of operations is not do academics first and then care about kids second. We have to account for kids' needs before we can expect them to engage in really rigorous academic work. All of the other outcomes that we hold near and dear ultimately are mediated by mental health. As the COVID-19 pandemic enters its third year, we are still working to fully understand its impacts, from lost lives and livelihoods to years of learning loss to a complete rewiring of how we think. And during that time, we've seen the emergence of a new crisis in mental health with record rates of depression, anxiety, and stress. How do we recover from all of this? How will we build back resilience? I'd advocate strongly that we need to do it together. We are stronger in numbers. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the next few weeks, we're speaking with mental health leaders about what's driving this crisis, how to meet the overwhelming need, and what local innovators here in Massachusetts are doing to drive solutions. In our last episode, we spoke with Dr. Maurizio Fava, Chief of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. Today, I'm joined by John Crocker, founder and director of the Massachusetts Mental Health Consortium and director of School Mental Health and Behavioral Services for Methuen Public Schools. We talk with John about the ways in which young people are experiencing and coping with mental health right now and the role of schools in prevention and treatment. John, it's so great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to it. And just to start off, can you talk a little bit about the work that you do in schools? You've worked in schools and you've worked on mental health and kids for a very long time. Could you just give some context to what you do every day? Yeah, absolutely. So my primary role is as the director of school mental health and behavioral services for Methuen Public Schools. My day-to-day responsibilities here really center around providing good clinical supervision and evaluation for the team of school counselors, school psychologists, adjustment counselors, social workers. We have a big team in the range of 40-ish individuals that are providing care to kids across K-12. So my work is to support them in supporting kids, make sure that we are resourcing them well, get them great professional development. And also my work centers around the development and sustaining our comprehensive school mental health system, which is really the model that we've adopted that was developed by the National Center for School Mental Health. And what do you see within that model? Things like universal mental health screening, K-12. So we screen for things like anxiety and depression and trauma, substance use. We provide evidence-based therapeutic care across all grade levels. Social emotional learning is alive and well in Methuen as well. We, We implement a cognitive behavioral theory grounded curriculum called Trails to Wellness. So Uh, Really, we feel like the through line for all of our interventions is cognitive theory, which allows for us to feel really good about readying up our entire population for services and providing more intensive services to the kids that need it. So, John, you're saying 40 professionals work in Methuen in the school district and taking care of how many kids? We're a district of about 7,000 students across four K-8 buildings and one high school. That's a pretty amazing ratio. It's a great ratio, and it's a ratio that we got to over time. It did not start that way. One thing that we've definitely been able to do is to argue that more help is necessary by engaging in good screening practices. We showed that aggregate data to our stakeholders. We're very open about sharing our data so that we can paint a picture of need. Ultimately, when we can be honest and open about the needs of our kids, it's a much easier argument that we need more staff to be able to respond to this need. 
And certainly, I'm, I'm going to say the wake of the pandemic and be, and be positive here. I'm hoping we're approaching a time where we can say that the needs of kids have doubled, tripled. We're seeing two to three times greater prevalence rates in our district. We were absolutely invested in caring for kids in a, in a big way and accounting for their mental health before the pandemic. But we still feel like we need to double down on all of those activities and those strategies and systems because it is absolutely the case that prevalence rates are skyrocketing. They're skyrocketing. But do you agree that they were rising before the pandemic? The pandemic seems to have amplified everything. But you were already seeing, the nation was already seeing, I think, that there was a rise in mental health needs in students. A hundred percent. And one of the things that we're really proud of is that we took seriously the charge of caring for our kids and providing really quality mental health services before the pandemic in a way that allowed for us to respond accordingly when the pandemic hit. I definitely feel for districts that maybe didn't make that initial investment and, and are now responding to needs that are far outstripping the resources and capacity that is necessary. So even though we took it seriously, that's not to say that we didn't have to redouble efforts because this is this is really a, a crisis for our kids. One of the things that impressed me the most when I met you and heard you talk first about mental health is that you're very data driven. And we at the foundation, as we make decisions about how to help solve problems, rely on lots of data and lots of analysis before we make a move. You do that also in Methuen Public Schools and you help other school districts do that through screening. And I'm curious how you built momentum and support for doing that work for screening, because we've definitely run into schools and school districts where they're afraid almost to see what the data might show them. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it's important and why people are afraid to do it? Uh, No, I've I've definitely heard the argument like, gosh, John, what are we going to do with all of these anxious and depressed students? And to that, I say, well, they're already here. Like the, the, the screening doesn't make them anxious and depressed. It just allows for you to respond to it in a meaningful way. There's no better way, in my opinion, to be able to foster prevention than actually asking questions about kids' needs early. The national average wait time from the onset of symptom presentation to getting help is eight to 10 years. That is absolutely abysmal. And is this because parents don't know what signs to look for and perhaps also teachers and staff don't know what signs to look for? Why is there such a gap? Both and. It's it's not any one thing. I think that in general, finding students with internalizing concerns like anxiety and depression and trauma, it's hard. You know, these students don't come with a label on them. So we need systems like screening to be able to get ahead of problems, look for emerging concerns and foster proactive preventative care. Engaging in that kind of prevention work is the reason why we can ultimately turn the tide on the prevalence rates for mental health, it has allowed for us to be responsive as opposed to waiting for the two things that unfortunately we tend to wait for in the field, which is diagnosis and crisis. That's a pretty terrible public health model. We were able to build momentum with screening by showing its efficacy and uncovering the needs of our kids. But I will caution people that it's not something that we did overnight. We didn't start to universally screen our kids in one shot. It started with one kid, one day, one measure, and we reacted to that. We piloted that. We tested it out. 
we asked questions of that implementation. So we really took a continuous quality improvement approach to this. Small tests of change leading to larger tests of change over time. One kid turns into five, then 10, maybe a class, grade level, school district. And in that way, we can account for changes to our implementation and sustain that good growth while adjusting our practices relative to the scale of our implementation. So for districts that are interested in screening, I often tell them, wonderful, you're not going to get to the universal part of universal screening until you've tested this out with smaller pockets of the population. It's also really effective for a district that maybe doesn't have that internal capacity to respond to those needs. You know, I heard that concern that you brought up, like, what are we going to do? Like, how can we respond to the needs of these kids now that we know about it? And my thinking there would be, well, screen until you are at capacity and then use those data to argue for more help. You can aggregate those data and make some really strong conjectures about what the needs of your larger population actually are. And what's realistic for a district or a school to expect in terms of what the time frame is to get from single student or group of student screenings to a universal screening program? If you've got a, a good team behind you, if you've got the administrative support, if you are getting good coaching and professional development to support this, then I would say that you could attend a couple hours worth of training to ready you up and orient you to the right kinds of questions so that you could do single student screening next week. That's totally doable. And beyond that, I think it's good communication and planning that will perhaps allow for you to scale up to maybe a classroom level in a few weeks. You know, Make sure that you've communicated clearly, adopted good consent procedures, that you know what measure you're going to use, that you have planned out the communication with staff and families and kids. That takes a little bit of time, but it's also stuff that has been done. It's, you know, you can take the guesswork out of it. You'll just need to plan in advance. Who's going to respond to the data? Make sure you figure that out too. Make sure you understand the crisis procedures that need to be developed. So I think you could go from single student to classroom level in a few weeks, quite frankly. Classroom level to grade level, a few weeks after that. Once you hit classroom level, grade level, passive consent with opt-out procedures is typically what I see and allows for you to not only move quickly to screen and not chase down active consent paperwork, but it also puts mental health on the same level as all the other things for which we use passive consent with and opt-out, things like vision and hearing screening, things like dental screening. We want to equate mental well-being as just as important as all these other physical screenings. Let's talk a little bit about the problem. The Washington Post had an article earlier this week that was entitled Why the Children's Mental Health Crisis Predates the Pandemic. And in it, they said this, the pandemic hasn't created a children's mental health crisis out of nowhere. Rather, it's shown a spotlight on a catastrophe that has been hiding in plain sight for a very long time. It sounds like you would agree with that. What do you think has started to really amplify the problem is it that there are new stressors in students' lives? Are they less resilient? Are the adults that surround them less resilient? What, what do you think is causing this like dramatic rise over time yeah. in mental health? I think that's the million-dollar question. And I guess what I'll throw on the table is I don't ever think that it's any one thing. 
it's the confluence of a lot of risk factors that result in dysfunction and in student need. I know some people will point to social media and some people will point to violence in the media and some will point to ongoing conflict around the world. But I don't think any one of those options is necessarily wrong. I just think it's part of the overarching set of reasons why we're seeing an uptick in mental health needs for our youth. And certainly, like, I want to point to inequity that exists, for sure. Students dealing with racism, students dealing with a tremendous amount of need related to social influencers of health and education, things like food insecurity and housing insecurity, not having access to health care, not having access to the things that they need to be able to engage meaningfully in, in school or in life. It's a drawn out way of, of basically saying it's a whole of things. It's, it, you know, it's, it's never any one thing. And I think that if we, if we adopt a stance that it's one thing, we might forget about all those other contributing factors that have resulted in this crisis for kids. Yeah, I think I think those are all right on. And, um, you know, it's interesting because in 2019, which was a year before the pandemic hit, already one in three high school students and about half, 50 percent of all high school girls were reporting persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. The data shows that adolescent girls and low income kids, to your point, have fared particularly poorly in this decades long rise in mental illness. Do you have a more concerted effort on those particular populations in Methuen? How do you think about making sure that the kids who potentially need the most help have the largest light shown on them? Yeah, it's really important that we engage in all of these practices with a culturally responsive lens, that we are accounting for the, the disparities that exist between groups. I think that as an example of what we're trying to do, when we screen, we absolutely run that data through its courses to ensure that there's not disproportionality. If there is, then I have some questions to ask. What happens when we screen a population and the response rate for, as an example, Hispanic males is less than what we would expect relative to their representation in the community? What's going on there? That's a, that's a question that has to drive change. So I think that when we are sensitive to disproportionality data, it allows for us to ask questions of our implementation that will reduce inequity. That's the hard work is figuring out the why behind disproportionality. But that's the work that we have to do. It's, it's essential. Otherwise, we're talking about kids getting less access to services, kids being identified less often as a, as a function of how they identify. That's that's not OK. And I would imagine that carries through on the provider side as well, that as you're diagnosing or noticing students who do need support and help, you need to match them with folks who truly understand them culturally and understand where they're coming from, their point of view, what their lives are like. And it sounds like there are many fewer people of color who are in the mental health field. I don't know if there are fewer women also, but how do you think about that as you hire for folks to serve the district? It's really important that we have a district that is representative of our culture, that our kids are getting culturally and linguistically appropriate services. That's essential. So 
it's absolutely the case that you know I, I'm certain I certainly seek out um, individuals who are bilingual, who bring a different perspective to the table, who bring cultural competence to the table. I certainly want to ensure that you know the staff that is servicing the kids that um, we care so much about reflect the community. Yeah, absolutely. You talked a little bit about stigma as well, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if that's changed at all. If 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 we're seeing advances in people understanding that, you know, we all understand what a broken arm is, but for some reason, acknowledging a broken brain, you know, a broken nervous system is something that's harder to do for us culturally. Do you see that stigma fading at all? Or do you find that it's still hard to talk with colleagues and with the community about mental health care and why you do screenings and what your entire department is about? I absolutely think that we've had some advances with this topic. I'm happy to see in pockets, I'm happy to see with specific pieces of the topic that stigma has been reduced in some ways. But I I also know that we have a long way to go, for sure. And I think that it's all well and good to care about mental health. You'd be hard pressed to find someone that says, I don't actually care about mental health, but there's a difference between caring about mental health and doing something to enact change for a kid or a population. So it's the action-driven work. It's the theory to action piece that for me is so essential. When I see that happening on a broad scale, I think I'll feel better about that stigma reduction piece because it's not just the feeling about mental health, it's action being undertaken to do something about it. And that's what we really try to promote here by, you know, putting services in place and, and talking the, and walking the walk. I, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't see gains, and I'm thankful for those. I hope those gains are sustained. I hope that we don't lose sight of the importance of reduction of stigma, and that, and we still have a long way to go. Do you find that what is coming out of Washington right now, and even, I guess, the media in, in terms of shining a light on our needs as a country around mental health and and students' needs, is that helpful? And are you seeing ESSER funding? Because there's tons of money that's come from the government to go to schools to help around recovery from the pandemic. Is that money at all being spent on surveillance and assessment and and any of those things? Certainly. You know, some of this funding is absolutely pointed directly at mental health. and And I truly appreciate that. It's incredibly necessary. It's essential. I'm thrilled about the conversations that are happening on the Hill. I'm thrilled about the commitment to in various different documents about like prioritizing mental health and social emotional learning for kids. I love that. I also want to ensure to my previous point that we are enacting change. I love the attention around it. I love the advocacy for it, but we have to do something about it. And if the words aren't accompanied by action, then that would be a shame. You talked to me a little bit about the adults. It looks like from data that's been published recently, adults may be even a more dire situation in terms of mental wellness than kids. And I'm wondering most, because we, every district we talk to talks about how all of the adults are fried, that they're just exhausted. There was so much pressure put on them over the past couple of years to take care of kids. Is this in any way just impacting our kids? Is this part of the reason that do you, in your opinion, that 
our kids are suffering to such a larger extent? Are they just feeling the residual impact or are they also feeling the residual impact of how adults are feeling? I mean, I'll add it to the list of reasons why kids are experiencing mental health problems. I think that ensuring that our adults, our staff in schools, our families are supported and given the care that they need is is incredibly essential. I think it would be foolhardy to to not highlight their needs and to also redouble efforts toward advancing their well-being. Secondary traumatic stress is a thing. It's real. It's, It's also the case that we need to educate people around secondary traumatic stress, especially educators who are a population of individuals that are exposed to the trauma of other individuals at an alarming rate. Talk to me about what success looks like when you execute screening programs and then programs to care for students in Methuen. What does that look like? What it tell me about when it's successful, what happens? Yeah, I, I mean, I think success starts with orienting to prevention, to see that we are actually stemming the tide of the onset of mental health problems. That to me is, is true success when we're providing kids before crisis and diagnosis with skills and knowledge such that they can navigate a very stressful space or they can manage conflict, they can manage their emotions, they can regulate before more intensive services are necessary. That to me is huge success. It's also success to me when we identify kids early, when we enact screening such that we are finding students for whom we had no knowledge previously That is the gold of screening. When we find a kid who was previously unidentified and we are offering services to that student in a way that can, again, stem the tide of more serious mental health problems. Success also looks like a kid enrolling in services and successfully completing a course of treatment. The message that we send to kids and that we should be sending to kids is, Um, I want to provide you with an experience such that you can go it alone. I want you to not need me after this. I want to be completely useless to you in this fright. Become obsolete to the kid because you've done a great job of giving them the skills and knowledge and strategies that they can use to manage their emotions. And see, all those things are success. When a kid graduates from services, that is a celebration. That's wonderful. So I think it can look like a lot of different things. Those are some ways in which I think we can say we did right by kids. Yeah, that's great. You do this work not only for Methuen, but you also have something called the Comprehensive School Mental Health System, which you run and you, and you help the state and other districts create programs like what you've created and systems like you've created in Methuen are other districts taking you up on this offer and what kind of momentum is there in Massachusetts for better screening and care of our kids? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give a little background. We started the Massachusetts School Mental Health Consortium a little over four years ago, and it started with reflection on what we had developed. We were part of the National Center for School Mental Health's collaborative for Improvement and Innovation Network for Comprehensive School Mental Health. So that's quite the acronym. But the experience was one that allowed for us to work with another 11 districts across the country and to develop a comprehensive school mental health system. That was the goal then, was to get that system off the ground. So fast forward a few years and we were really thrilled with all that we had created. But 
we recognized that there were districts around us that were still really struggling uh, to understand how to put into play a comprehensive school mental health system. At that point, we really felt like the onus was on us to share. The idea of creating the Massachusetts School Mental Health Consortium was an attempt at resource sharing and collaboration to develop comprehensive school mental health systems in different districts. It was a place where people could go to get answers, to get professional development, technical assistance, coaching. We started with 30 districts and I cold called a bunch of districts and, and you know pulled in a, uh, some colleagues and it has grown exponentially since then. We now work with about 160 districts across the state. We partner with Department of Elementary and Secondary Education on projects related to school mental health. It's all well and good if there's a great mental health system in Methuen, but this work needs to spread to all communities. Yeah. Do you feel like it's too much or not too much? Because our schools have become the place where we expect them to educate our kids and help them be successful and competitive. We also expect schools to keep them safe, provide them meals, really care for them. Is it okay that we also now expect for schools to help us understand and to some degree treat their mental health. Is that a doable ask? In my opinion, it's an essential task. Like the order of operations is not do academics first and then care about kids second. We have to account for kids' needs before we can expect them to engage in really rigorous academic work. All of the other outcomes that we hold near and dear ultimately are mediated by mental health. I think that, you know, if you care about MCAS, invest in mental health. If you care about reducing crisis and behavioral concerns, invest in mental health. If you care about the long-term success of kids who are going to matriculate to four-year institutions, you better invest in mental health. It's the magic bullet that mediates all these outcomes. And I think that if we don't take seriously our charge, and we expect that this is going to happen in some other place or by someone else, then we're going to miss out on the fact that we are the prevention arm of the mental health system writ large. How do you think about parents and families and caregivers in this equation? Can they be a part of the solution? Do you in any way reach out to the community, provide support or knowledge to your caregiver community so that they can help be a part of the solution? Absolutely. Our parents are a huge feature in the success of any of these interventions or systems. Ultimately, we are a service for our students and families. And if, if it's not going well for them, then we need to orient to a different way of doing business. It's the best case scenario when our parents are active participants in this experience and when we can communicate effectively with them, when we can orient to their needs in a way that's most effective, and when we can also in, incorporate them into the services that we provide. A great example is when we can partner with families to increase the efficacy of these interventions that we provide to kids because they're speaking the same language and carrying the same message home. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like we need another playbook for parents you know, to really understand like the things that you're screening for, what should they be looking for at home? How do they communicate that to school staff? How do they have a conversation that's not defensive or accusatory? And then once you understand the issue, how a child is suffering, what is their role at home in supporting the overall treatment? I don't know. Does a book like that exist? Because it feels like it would be 
really helpful. (laughs) There are some wonderful resources out there for parents. One that comes to mind, you know, just off the top of my head is the National Child Traumatic Stress Network has put together some great family resources that really help to paint a picture of like, this is what to look for. This is how to react. This is how to provide care. This is how you talk to kids about mental health. Handholdmass.org also is a, a resource that's fairly new. I think it was stood up during the pandemic that really helps parents to navigate the mental health discussion with kids. For me, it's less about the things that exist out there, and it's more about ensuring that parents know about them. Because like, I know about Handhold Mass, but that's not gonna do families a whole lot of good unless we communicate to that, that to them effectively. So for, for all of these resources, it really needs to be the case that we're ushering them into families' sphere of understanding so that they can use them. So, John, this podcast, you know, there are folks who are educators who are listening to it. There are funders of education who are listening to it. There are parents who are listening to it. Give one tangible suggestion to each one of those groups in terms of what they might do to help address this extremely challenging time, either with their own children or more comprehensively to really help shift the tide at large. Um, I guess to to parents, I would say, if in your community, schools are not a source of mental health support, I would ask questions about that. I would advocate for that because I think that schools are uniquely positioned to provide a tremendous amount of care to kids and especially in a prevention-oriented kind of way. And I like your point about asking questions rather than demanding solutions because the questions can really unearth what is happening, what is working, and what might the gaps be? Right. You know, I, I, I know that districts are working incredibly hard to try and support kids. That work is only going to be undergirded by family input for maybe educators or staff in schools. In many ways, I would say something similar where what is our school, what is our district doing to ensure that we're protecting kids, we're, we're servicing kids, we're adopting a, a, a stance that we have to provide the services and supports to kids before we make lofty expectations or, or we set lofty expectations around academic gains. To potential funders, I would say, please keep funding. It is the case that districts need a lot of resources and support and staffing is a piece of that, professional development is a piece of that. I think that it's going to be really important to make an investment in our kids' well-being. This is not something that just goes away. And on a long enough timeline, the problems that are initiated for kids in youth carry over into adulthood. So an investment in mental well-being is an investment in communities, in outcomes for the workforce, in outcomes for insurance, medical expenses long-term care. Yeah, they're really one plus one equals four. And and I guess your point holds there too, that you know, when you're f- funding, you should be asking the same questions yeah. to understand where a district is and to make sure that how they want to use the funding makes sense in terms of the overall strategy. I guess one more thing I would add that is really essential is clinical leadership. When we don't invest in clinical leadership, and we don't have great clinical supervision and evaluation, meaning our the people that we have positioned to help kids are not getting the support they need. 
around feedback and professional development and coaching and support such that they can grow in their profession. It's also the case that there isn't a seat at the table when decisions are being made about how to enact systems of care for kids. I think that if tomorrow all of the English department chairs started supervising the math department, we would be up in arms as a community. We would have a hard time with that. But we're actually okay with very well-meaning individuals with no counseling background supervising and evaluating counseling staff. And that doesn't lend itself to a great situation where we're moving the dial on clinical practice in schools. And we're also not providing that expert content knowledge to move systems in schools for kids. Um, and that's not a knock on anyone who's trying to do a good job supervising counseling staff, but ultimately not having the background knowledge. I think an investment in clinical leadership and clinical supervision as a function of that clinical leadership is essential. And I'm assuming that this is part of the support that you can help districts decide on. How do you make sure you have the right clinical supervisor? You do that work through the Massachusetts School Mental Health Consortium. Is it okay to share how folks who are listening might get in contact with you if they want to learn more about how you might be able to help their district? Absolutely. You know, we, we try to ensure that resource sharing and collaboration, great PD and technical assistance is available to districts to move the dial on school mental health. Uh, MASMHC.org is the website. You can find us at MASSMH uh, through Twitter. And you can reach out to me directly in Methuen. John's great. John Crocker, thank you so much for spending time with me today. We really could go on for hours, but I appreciate you helping me just kind of shine a light on what great districts like yours are doing and what is available across the state for other school districts to support our students and adults in this slightly frustrating, scary <laughs> time. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you very much. Thank you very thank much. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this. Um, I appreciate it. And I look forward to chatting more and we're chatting with people who want to reach out to get more help. So thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with John Crocker. John's data-driven approach to increase screening and support for student mental health is providing a blueprint for addressing this crisis across our state and potentially the nation. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.